And I just invite you to pray with me as we open our time of worship under the word of God. Father in heaven, it is a joy to gather with your people, to hear your praises sung together, to fellowship together in the love of Christ, to, Father, come under your embrace, the embrace of your love, as we acknowledge what you have accomplished in the sending of your Son. And as our hearts are turned toward the written word, the word that you have given to your church this morning, there is great joy and comfort in hearing from our God the instruction of Scripture, the encouragement of your word, the voice of your authority over your church, and the blessing of your grace and mercy and love that is taught to us through the written word. I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak well on it this morning, but for each of us that are believers here this morning, give us listening ears. For those that are hearing and are yet not one of yours, we pray that you would do the work of the heart that only you can do. And we trust ourselves entirely into your care in this hour of worship for your glory and for your purposes in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just a couple of preemptive points here for those of you that happen to be in the Sunday school hour. Uh, I, I did not know what was going to be in that lesson this morning, but some, some, we were discussing uh, some unbiblical reasons that people don't come to church or don't join a fellowship of the church, and some wiseacre made a comment about um, an unbiblical reason being long sermons. Um, that is a good point for you to observe this morning. I just want to let you know that in the beginning. Um, number two, the emphasis in that class happened to be on worship. And this is going to be the emphasis this morning on our study together, even as we turn to the Christmas theme or the Christmas nativity out of Luke chapter 2. And with that in mind, I would ask you to go with me to John chapter 4 before we start our study in Luke chapter 2. John chapter 4. We have been preaching through the Gospel of John, and several months ago we were in John chapter 4. So this is important and helpful for you to to go back and just refresh your memories on, Jesus was teaching the Samaritan woman by Jacob's well in this text. And in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, listen to the words of the, of the Savior speaking to this woman. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I suppose each year I feel there is an obligation on my part to remember, remind the church that December 25 is not a holy day. It is not a day ordained by the Lord God for any particular unique worship that sets it apart from any other day. 
And there are a couple of reasons that we would say this. First of all, we simply don't know the day that Jesus Christ was actually born, and quite likely it was not on December 25. But second, nowhere in God's word are we instructed to set apart a particular day to celebrate the birth of his son. Christmas, then, is man's tradition, to be sure. But what we do acknowledge is that God is to be worshipped for sending us such an eternally rich gift as we find in his Son. Jesus is to be worshipped himself as the Son of God that he is. He is to be worshipped as the Savior that he came to our world to, to be. And Jesus is to be worshipped because he is God and he is worthy of that worship. And we see that example set in the Nativity Scriptures, like in Matthew chapter 2, when wise men from the east traveled and kneeled before the Savior and worshipped him. We see that example in Luke chapter 2, when shepherds are called to the manger side, the crib side of the infant baby Jesus, and they went away worshipping. In addition to that, God the Father was worshipped and praise for the promises that he made to send the Messiah, even as we see in the Old Testament prophecies. Last year in our Christmas time worship, we went to several of those Old Testament prophecies, and we looked at what God had promised to do in the sending of his Son. And God is to be worshipped for that. But what do we mean by worshipping God at Christmas time? Is it about singing Christmas carols? Is it about decorating our homes with Bethlehem stars? Do we offer Christmas worship to God to set up nativity scenes in our yards or display illuminated crosses? It is not at all uncommon for secular people to become somewhat religious in their thoughts and activities at Christmas time. And at the same time, even religious people or even Christians, we might say, can become very sentimental and imaginative in presuming their activities during the Christmas season are worshipful. And I have to say, I love the sentiments of this season, and I actively indulge in them. I love the lights, the decorations, the trees, the exchanging of gifts, even watching a Christmas special on TV. But what is my view of God, and how do I worship Him for the gift of the sending of his son. In addition, most often in our Christmas worship services, we examine the Christ child. We give a lot of attention to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men. We're going to be doing that again this morning. But as my title reflects, this Christmas I would like the focus of our worship, the focus of attention to be on God the Father himself, in the giving of his son. And it's not as if in our Christmas season we ignore God. We don't. But I think that much of the time we spend focusing on the Christ child and different players in that nativity scene, like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. In our study of John chapter 4, back when we were looking at that in Gospel John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself taught that God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And this is kind of a condensed view of the gospel itself. 
we can say even as we look at the Christmas scene of the Christ child, the Savior being given to us, we could ask, why was a Savior given to mankind? And at the end of the day, we have to conclude it is that God is making worshipers of God. He sent a Savior to make worshipers. This means that from the very depth of our souls, if we're going to worship God in spirit and truth, from the very depth of our souls, God is to be honored and praised for who he is and for what he has done. Both the inner man and the truth of God's word have to be inseparable then in worship. To know God for who he is will require that we learn of him from his word. We must understand God as God has declared himself to be. And this knowledge and understand must, uh, understanding must stir within us. Once we know this God, when, once we understand this God, it must stir within us a true and a deep affection for him. I'm going to put up on the board um, a quote from Stephen Sharnock, who was an... I have to make this thing work first. Stephen Sharnock was one of the early uh, 16th century Puritans. And he made this comment in regard to worshiping God in spirit and in truth. He writes, we worship in spirit with the inward operations of all the faculties of our souls and the cream and flour of them. In other words, the very best that we can produce within. And the reason is because there ought to be a worship suitable to the nature of God, and as the worship was to be spiritual, so the exercise of that worship ought to be spiritual in manner. It shall be a worship in truth, because the true God shall be adored without those vain imaginations and fantastic resemblances of him which were common among the blind Gentiles and contrary to the glorious nature of God and unworthy ingredients in religious services. That last part, does it make you think of Christmas? And what men have done with Christmas in this thing that we called worship? Vain imaginations, fantastic resemblances of God, and unworthy ingredients in religious services. Without question, Christmas is a a time when man is drawn away by those kinds of imaginations. And many people come up with some rather fantastic impressions of the spiritual things of God. This is Christmas sentiment according to man's imaginations. As I was driving over this morning, I was listening to the Christian radio. And this gal happened to speak up and say, that in regard to Christmas, the very best sound of Christmas, she said, is laughter. The best sound of Christmas is laughter. In other words, everybody getting together and having a good time, the laughter of children, this is just the joy and the happy. This is sentimental. But is the best sound, when we think about the, the coming of the Savior, is it laughter? Or is it worship? 
As we look at the Christmas story from Scripture, God displayed the giving of his son in very unique and dramatic ways. He's recorded this drama in his word so that we can see him for who he is. We can see what he has done And we see it in a certain way because that way has been presented to us in God's word. And without question, the truth of who God is is going to be evident in what he does and what he speaks to us. And we don't want to get caught up in the vain imaginations and the fantastic resemblances of God. We don't want our worship of him to be contrary to his glorious nature, nor should our worship service incorporate unworthy ingredients that don't reflect his truth, or that are not the true expressions of our soul toward him. I mean, we can sit here and sing some of those glorious Christmas carols, but if our heart isn't correct, they're just words that are tumbling out of our mouth. Celebrating the birth of God's Son should not be simply a matter of feeling warm and fuzzy about God, or getting caught up in the seasonal traditions. We must not simply know about God. We must know God according to his truth. And what we do in worship of him has got to be more than an outward activity that looks very Christmassy. It must express, worship must express our adoration of God for who he truly is. And I continue again with Sharnak who writes, being a spirit, we must banish from our minds all carnal imaginations of him and separate from our wills all cold and dissembled affections or a false show to him. We must not only have a loud voice, we must have an elevated soul, not only a bended knee, but a broken heart, not only a supplicating tone, but a groaning spirit, not only a ready ear from the word, but a receiving heart. And this shall be of greater value to him than the most costly outward service. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be very good at that outward expression. We like to show our outward moral behavior. And we want people to think that's a reflection of what's really here inside of me. But God knows the difference. So this Christmas, I would like to spend some time really in theology to see God as the one who is giving this gift to us in his son. And we're going to consider whether or not our Christmas time celebration is a true worshipful response. We're going to turn to a very traditional Christmas passage to guide and direct our thoughts But I'm encouraging you, look for God in this text. See God for who he is. And understand his nature by what he is doing. With that, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to read down through the first 14 verses of this passage. Luke chapter 2. And next Sunday, we're going to be looking at this same passage as we move further on. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 2, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were accomplished for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This morning, in the first seven verses of this text, we're going to examine the unique majesty of God's giving, or we could say his gifting. The first part of our study of this well-known Christmas passage really reflects this unique majesty that we see in a way that God has given, in the way that God has given to us his son. And here we focus on the acts of God in the giving itself, but we have to include the gift in that giving. Because so exceptional is the gift, speaking of the son of God, it's a reflection again on the father's giving. A reflection of his love towards sinners, if nothing else. How do we know the depth of God's love, the majesty, and the glory of his love? Well, Paul said in Romans 5, it was demonstrated in that God gave to us his own son. So what we see in this gifting is the unique majesty of God, which will inspire the true believer to worship God in the way that he deserves, worship in spirit and in truth. Now, being unique is not all that unique in itself. We might consider somebody to be unique. We might consider something to be unique. But God is unique differently. He is unique in his majesty. God's majesty is understood as the greatness and the glory of his dignity, the dignity of his sovereignty, His supreme power and authority and rulership over all creation, his character, his righteousness, and his magnificence are truly unique in that they are like no other. Or perhaps it would be better for us to say no other is like him. We have in our human history seen sovereigns and kings before, presidents and rulers and queens and nations and powers and generals and armies that are great in power, maybe even we would say great in majesty. But no majesty of any other is like that of God's. And the uniqueness of God's majesty is very evident in how he sovereignly orchestrated the birth of his son. 
bringing salvation or bringing a savior to our world. And the majesty of this gifting act of God stands far and above any other action of men. Nothing even comes close to it. Nothing, even the great men of history, the great women of history, even comes close to this one act of God giving his son. Nothing compares to the gift of God's beloved and only begotten son. So I want to look at the uniqueness of God's majesty in this passage. We want to do a deeper examination of God in his gifting. What is he doing here? What is being accomplished here? How does that reflect the very character of God? And how do I respond once I behold that majesty? First, consider the uniqueness of God's preparations. And we see this in the first four verses. Luke begins this section of his gospel account by bringing us to the region around Bethlehem, the village which would serve as the birthplace of God's Messiah. And without question, as we talk about the preparations of the coming of Messiah, much more could be said. We could go to other passages like the first chapter of Luke which describes the preparation of God bringing Messiah into this world, even making use of a forerunner. And we're going to store, uh, uh, consider that, that passage in this forerunner, John the Baptist, in just a moment. We could go to Matthew chapter 1 and we could see the preparation, the genealogy of a man chosen to be the father of Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a moment as well. We could go to the Old Testament prophets and consider the preparation of the birth of the Savior. But when it comes to the actual entrance of God's Messiah into this world, Luke chapter 2 probably gives us far more details on the events of Christ's birth than do any other biblical account. And I want to begin with the chosen time because that's where Luke begins, isn't it? Now in those what? Days. What are these days? What does he mean by these days? And as Luke begins to paint this picture of those days, we see that in Israel's history, they were clearly under Roman occupation. This puts God's chosen nation of Israel under the dictatorship of a pagan Gentile ruler known as Caesar Augustus. This description only gives us a general season of time when Christ was born. It certainly doesn't give us a specific day like December 25. But it lets us know that in the Jewish community, this was an especially dark season of history. Not only was Rome a Gentile ruling power over Israel, but Rome had become a particular oppressive and harsh ruler. If you go back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, Luke tells us that Herod was appointed. Herod was appointed as king over Judea. And that man under Caesar Augustus was noted for his harsh and vile treatment of the Jewish people. If we go back to Matthew chapter 2, most of us will remember what Herod did when he heard that a king of the Jews had been born. He quickly inquired of the scribes and the chief priests from Jerusalem and say, where is this king supposed to be born? Where is Messiah going to come from? And they knew right away. Bethlehem. And so what did Herod do? He had all of the babies, two years old and under, 
slaughtered, not only in Bethlehem, but in the region surrounding Bethlehem. Why would he do such a thing? Because that king could possibly be a threat to his dominion and power. That king could be an inconvenience. That king could get in his way. That king could change his life. So what did he do? He killed the babies. Sounds like America, honestly. How many millions of babies have we killed because they make life inconvenient? Herod was a vile man. And Judea was under his kingship. Luke builds on this national hostility against Israel by focusing on a time where Quirinius was the governor of Syria. This was during the reign of Rome's emperor, Caesar Augustus. Now, that's a title. It's not particularly a name. Caesar means he was the ruler or the king. And Augustus was a name that means highly honored or esteemed one. In fact, when Caesar Augustus died, they deified him. They made him a a, a deity or a god. He was a man by the name of Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, Octavius, or Caesar Augustus, was known for his wise administration, a legacy of peace. He was big into public works. In fact, the roads and the highways that he built in Roman Empire throughout Asia became that which God used in the early church to send missionaries out with the gospel. Even in that evil king, that evil kingdom, we can see the hand of God at work. Quirinius, serving as a Roman official in Syria, gives to us a general timeline of the birth of Christ. Historians believe somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, most likely closer to 4 BC, was the birth of Christ. But there's a decree involved here in this time period. And it involves this census that was to be taken. And that was a common practice under the Roman Empire, but particularly offensive to the Jewish people. We go back to Old Testament history. Israel had some problems when they took censuses. So they were particularly sensitive to this. And in this case, Rome issued a census either to register men for military service or for taxation. Now, the Jews couldn't serve in Rome's military. And therefore, this was for Jewish taxation. And the Jews would have abhorred the idea of paying money to a pagan Gentile nation for the privilege of living under their dominion. It appears that Rome had placed a deadline on registering for the census since Joseph and Mary, when she was very late in her pregnancy, traveled some 70 miles south from Nazareth to Joseph's ancestral home of Bethlehem. And according to research available on this subject, the reason that Mary was going along with him, and you see that kind of implied in, in verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, it implies that Mary had to register in the census as well. According to historians, not only was Joseph going to be taxed, but apparently there was a poll tax required of women who were 12 years old and older. Now, if this is true... Joseph and Mary both would have been required by Roman law to make this journey and both would be paying money to the nation that had taken them captive. We can imagine how the Jewish community grieved 
over those circumstances. And given the abuse of the Roman dictatorship and the heavy taxation the Jews were expected to pay, it would not be difficult for us to imagine the kind of sentiment that people like Joseph and Mary may have had in making this long, difficult journey to sign your name on a registry so the government can tax you all the more. During this time, God chose to bring his son. Now look at the past year, the year 2020, here as Americans, and we have watched our government assume control over the citizens of this nation that many of us believe is an abuse of power, especially in regard to the church and our faith. And arguments are now even being made in the courts in regard to the constitutional rights that possibly have been violated. So I want you to, just for a moment, given that sentimentality that we have as Americans, don't tread on me, right? Make, put yourself there as a Jew under this kind of Roman domination. You're part of the nation of Israel. You've been taken captive by a strong and an oppressive government. And the order has been sent out. You've got to travel to your ancestral home and sign this registry, putting your name on the dotted line so that you can be taxed by an unwanted dictator. And your monies would be used by your national master to further advance his power over you. How are you going to feel about that? We know how we felt when our state wanted us to register to go in stores and restaurants and possibly even churches a few months ago. We didn't like that idea. Imagine an oppressive government that has taken over your nation and ordered you to make a journey to register with this government so they can tax you. What would you think about such of a law? How might you respond? Further, I want to consider ourselves just for a moment to be God-fearing Jews. We are actually of the Jewish community that we're worshiping God and living in God's laws and his righteousness. And we, like other God-fearing Jews, were waiting for the promise of the Messiah. What if it were told you that such a decree requiring such a journey was actually God sovereignly accomplishing his purposes to bring salvation to the world? Would it change how you might think about climbing out that docky and heading 70 miles? To register? To be taxed? Would it change how we saw those unjust laws? I would suggest, yeah, it would. If I'm a God-fearing person, and I'm waiting for the promise of the Messiah, and I was told that God is going to use that journey and me being taxed and that census to bring the Savior into the world, I think... It might be a sacrifice I would be willing to make. You can imagine how this might have altered Joseph and Mary's sentiments. Here they are in a specific time in history. A time that looked very dark to the nation of Israel. Laws were being created that seemed very, very unjust. Things that were impoverishing and offending our liberties and our rights. And then God speaks to us and said, I'm using that time 
to bring Messiah, to bring the Savior. It gives to us, brothers and sisters, a picture of the sovereignty of God who is involved in nations and kings and rulers. As it says in Proverbs 21, that God changes the heart of the king wherever he wishes him to go, like channels of the river. God is in control. God is sovereign. We see the majesty of God, even in the timing of this event, which seems so bleak and dark to the citizens of Israel, but it's a time chosen by God. Mary and Joseph were not told all of the details, perhaps, but they were told that the baby in Mary's womb was the work of God, and God was bringing about salvation to this world. We are not told all that they might have discussed on that journey, how they felt necessarily about the census or taxation. But what do we find in Joseph and Mary? The two servants that humbly submitted to the purposes of God. Matthew tells us that Joseph did all that the angel of the Lord commanded him. And Luke, in chapter 1, tells us that Mary responded to the message of the angel by saying, Behold, the slave of God, the bond slave of the Lord, may be a done to me according to your word. Without a doubt, our worship of God, who has given to us his Son, must be characterized by devotion and obedience to his word. And for us, this means we see ourselves as slaves to God, slaves to his will and purposes. And our response in worship should be an eager submission to God's will. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy with everything government does. But it does mean God is at work. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. I don't understand all of his ways. But I eagerly submit to God's will. What kind of worship gathers with other believers to sing the hymns of praise for the birth of his son, but yet does not obey the voice of his son? What kind of worship complains and protests the very hand of God that is sovereignly moving our lives to accomplish his purpose through even our current times. Worship must acknowledge the majesty of his rule over times and over circumstances. And in the majesty of his sovereignty, he works all things, all things. And we're going to see that again in just a moment. We move then to the chosen place of God. Not only does Luke 2 identify the chosen time that God would bring salvation to the world in the sending of his son, but he chose a specific place. And notice how Luke names those in verse 4. Joseph went from Galilee to his hometown of Nazareth, down south some 70 miles to what the city of David is called the Bethlehem town. The village of Bethlehem, a very small and dirty little village. To the house and the family of David, that's Joseph's roots. And God was carefully orchestrating Caesar Augustus' pen to determine a census, a taxation that would require Joseph to go where he didn't live. He didn't live in Bethlehem. I don't know, he may never have visited Bethlehem before. He was from Nazareth. 
How would God get that man and his wife, who is pregnant, to the place that God determined to be the birthplace of the Savior? I will use a census. I will use a Roman government. And I will bring my servants to Bethlehem so that my son, the Messiah, would be born and bring salvation to the world. Do you get the context here? God has a chosen place in mind. And this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet as a a place that God would choose for his son to enter this world. Matthew 2 describes this scene for us when wise men from the east came from an eastern country to worship this newborn king. And again, Herod, the king who was given charge over Judea, was very troubled by that news. So he inquires of the chief priests and the scribes from Jerusalem, where is this Messiah supposed to come from? And they knew right away, didn't they? They turned to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Remember later on in Jesus' ministry, they questioned, the, the Jewish rulers questioned whether or not Jesus could be the true Messiah because they knew he was from Nazareth. They did not know that he was born in Bethlehem, according to scriptures. That all to say the Jewish community knew by Old Testament prophecy that Jesus, Messiah, must come out of Bethlehem. And it was based on this prophecy that God used the oppressive laws and the oppressive government of Rome to bring Joseph and Mary from their hometown of Nazareth to the place determined by God to be the birthplace of his son, who would be the eternal king of his people. That was King David's birthplace. And scripture tells us that David served as God's choice of a king, over and against man's choice, which was King Saul. David then served as a representation of the eternal king that God had chosen to rule his people in all of eternal glory, namely Jesus Christ, God's own son. David was a picture of Christ. He was a picture of the coming Messiah who would rule on the throne of David. That would be God's ultimate choice. And therefore, Jesus, according to God's determination, was to be born in the city of David. Bethlehem. Everything that happened in those days was the hand of God moving circumstances to the places that he wanted those things to occur. Consider for a moment the implications of God's unique timing in the incarnation and how God used this to fulfill his word that Messiah would be born in the city of David in a specific place. God made use of very unique times and circumstances to accomplish his will. Now, again, it's doubtful that Joseph and Mary knew all of the details. And it is possible they did not realize that God would use that census and the Roman taxation to bring about the birth of the Savior. But I want you, especially you ladies who have been pregnant or who maybe are pregnant right now, Imagine being near birth and riding 70 miles on a donkey 
if you had the luxury of a donkey. I mean, that's what our Christmas cards show, right? So I'm going with the donkey. But maybe she had to walk, and there's no toilets. There's no running water. That would have been a difficult journey. We don't question that. But God has his purposes. And he's telling Joseph and Mary, I want you to pick up from this location and go to this location. Because that is where your child is going to be born. And he will be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So despite any objections they may have had over Rome's oppressive laws, they were confident in this much, that the baby that Mary was about to give birth to was a unique gift, a unique work of God. And this child was in the hands of God. If Joseph and Mary could trust that God was working his will to bring his Messiah into the world through the unjust laws of men, how much more can God be trusted with the lesser things under his control. We don't always see where the events of life are leading. And God does not always stop and tell us what channels he's working through or how he intends to fulfill all of his purposes. But it may well be that those very trying times that we must endure or the very injustices that we have to suffer under are the channels that God is using to accomplish the majesty of his purposes, the majesty of his will. Now, we're certainly not visited by the angel Gabriel to kind of announce to us God's doing something special here. But what place are we in today? Is it a financial trial, a marital issue, a health issue, a work issue, a a family issue? It could be any kind of circumstance or any kind of difficult place that we're at right now. God has assured us in his word that he works all things together in our lives for our good and his glory. But I want to turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. Because the Apostle Paul recognizes this in the working of God. And I'm going to emphasize the working of God in all things. Even taxation. Even a census. Even a 70-mile ride on a donkey when you're pregnant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul writes, For all things are for your sakes. All things are for your sake. So that the grace which is... Wait a minute, grace? What about that donkey ride? What about taxation? What about the misery of a census? What about my financial hardships, my health uncertainties? That is the gracious hand of God doing on our lives what we do not deserve to have him do. All things are for our sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to what? The glory of God. There's worship. There's the presence of worship. God is at work in all things, graciously working in all things. And the objective is that what is going to spread from this to more and more people is the giving of thanks, of worship to God, that he would be glorified. Why would we give thanks? Why would we glorify him? Why would we worship him for all things 
that he's graciously working in. Because he's in control. He's going to accomplish his purposes. He's doing something majestic that is beyond sometimes what we see. And sometimes our worship looks more like complaining and grumbling or pouting. What I believe Luke is showing us here is that God is at work. And what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church is that God is sovereignly at work in all things, graciously accomplishing his good purposes so that we can respond with gratitude to the glory of God. That is worship. Worship is an attitude of the heart that sees God moving all things for his glory. God is moving all things in the direction of bringing more believers who will worship God for that glory, who will give thanks to God. This is not about our exaltation, our personal advancement, our comforts, our own personal pleasures. This is about his glory and our gratitude to him. This is the theology of God that we see in the birth of his son. And it moves us to a second point that we need to observe. God's unique persons, those that were specifically chosen by God to take part in the birth of his son. Now, I've used the word person here because I'm looking for P words, but I would prefer servants or slaves. God has chosen uniquely servants to accomplish his purposes. Just as unique as God's timing is the majesty that he exercised in choosing specific servants that would accomplish his will. And we see majesty in this choosing because only God can accomplish such a powerful and a gracious salvation for sinners through the lives of sinners. And that's exactly what God has done. He has brought salvation to us through sinners like Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men. What makes the Christmas story, I think, so rich and full to us is the characters that God chose to bring into the world his son. People just like you and I. God worked through common men and women. He blessed them with his gracious intervention. And I think we need to, as believers, see ourselves as his servants. Because when we tire of serving, and many of us have been very active in service to Christ in the past, service to his church, but not so much anymore. Why is that? Why do we fade back into the shadows? I would suggest it's because we've lost sight of the majesty of God. When we see his glory, when we see his majesty, it is that that inspires us to serve him. Serve him like these people that God has chosen in the birth of his son. And we're going to begin with a couple of examples like Zacharias and Elizabeth. We back up one chapter. Luke begins his gospel narrative by retelling the record of God's dealings with two older people that were well beyond having children. But he chose them for the bringing of the Messiah into this world. This is a story about a barren woman named Elizabeth and her husband who is a priest named Zacharias. Both were advanced in years. And Luke brings that detail into the story to not only tell us that Elizabeth was incapable of having children, 
But now in her age, she was well beyond the years when physically she could do it. What does that show us? The majesty of God, right? The power of God to accomplish his purposes through a couple of common older folks that maybe thought we're well beyond the use of God now. We're getting to our sunset years. Zachariah is probably thinking about retirement. And both of them fading into the shadows. And that's where God steps in and shows us his majesty, his power, his glory. Look at what I can do to accomplish my purposes through a couple of old people that think they're about to retire out. You look at verse 14 and 17, 14 through 17 of chapter 1. And look at what Gabriel is explaining to them, Zacharias and Elizabeth. You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. Speaking of John the Baptist, the baby that Elizabeth would give birth to. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what God is going to do through two older people that were retiring out. Boy, do you think that inspired him? Our child will do that? It's the power of God on display. The glory of God, the supremacy of God, the ability of God, wisdom of God. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is what Zacharias said of his son after he was born. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You're going to go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God which the sunrise from on high will visit us. This is Zacharias's words after he had come out of being made a mute by God, silenced because he said, what can God do with me? It's impossible. So Gabriel said to him, you're going to be silent for a while. And that silence is broken with these words at the end of Luke 1 to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's the display of his majesty with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. John the Baptist would be greatly used by God in presenting Messiah to Israel. But here we witness the majesty of God speaking through John's father, Zacharias, describing how the birth of his son would affect all believers, you and I as well. Then we look at Joseph, another servant, uniquely chosen by God. And it tells us about a man that is called a righteous servant. If you go back and look at Zacharias and Elizabeth, It says of them that they also were righteous and they walked blamelessly before the Lord. 
We know from Scripture that none of us are righteousness. So how can Scripture say that of Zacharias and Elizabeth or of Joseph, that he was a righteous man? It tells us that God had already been preparing these servants to accomplish his purposes. If any one of us are to be considered righteous and walking blamelessly before the Lord, we know it isn't because of me. It is because of the one who dwells within me, the Spirit of God. So he is working. The Spirit of God is working in Zacharias and Elizabeth and Joseph. Matthew chapter 1 is probably the longest text of Scripture on that man, Joseph. Though he was chosen for such a prominent role to be the father of the Christ child, very little is written beyond this in God's word. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, that's about the best of it right there. Joseph then must be content to remain in the shadows to the, as a father to Jesus because God himself must be the dominant father figure in the life of his son. God's word describes Joseph as a righteous man and honorable to care for Mary, the woman that was to be his wife. Yet that woman became pregnant before she was married to Joseph, which prompted him to want to break that marriage engagement, but he was going to do so quietly and without bringing shame to her. God was pleased then to reveal to Joseph in a dream that he had a plan for both his wife, the child that she is carrying, and for Joseph himself. The child in Mary's womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the angel said to him in a dream. And Joseph was to take Mary as his wife, assuming a fathering role for God's Messiah. Joseph was instructed to name the child Jesus because he was going to save God's people from their sins. And once again, God chose a servant of his will whom he knew would act in obedience to all that God had ordained for him, for Joseph. Matthew tells us that when Joseph woke from his dream, he did exactly what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary to be his wife. He named the baby Jesus, meaning God saves. And then we consider, third, Mary, chosen by God, to be the mother of the Lord. Now, in Luke chapter 1, we read that Gabriel came to Mary, a virgin who was engaged to be married to Joseph. Both in Luke and in Matthew, we read that both Mary and Joseph were chosen because of their lineage to David. And this was to fulfill the prophecy that Messiah would be the eternal king who would sit on the throne of David. And therefore, Jesus would not only have the bloodline through his father, adopted father Joseph, but he would have, or through, through Mary, I should say, he actually had the bloodline through Mary, but he had the legal right to sit on the throne through his father Joseph. Mary was also chosen, like Joseph, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, for her righteousness and her obedience to the Lord's will. And when Gabriel came to Mary, he addressed her as the highly favored one, the highly graced one which again tells us that God had been preparing Mary for this role, causing her to be blessed of God with much grace so that she would walk obediently and righteously before him. She was a chosen vessel being carefully prepared 
to bring Messiah into the world. Gabriel then announces to her that God had chosen her to bring Messiah into the world and that he would be called the Son of the Most High. He would occupy the throne of his father David and there would be no end to his kingdom. Mary was unsure how she was to fulfill her part since she had never been with a man and she was unmarried at this point. It is then that Gabriel describes to her the majesty of God in this unique birth. And I'm going to quote from verse 35 of Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. As with Elizabeth, God's power will again be displayed in how this young virgin woman was to conceive and give birth to God's Son. In our study of John's Gospel, we recall how many times Jesus refers to God as his Father. And he refers to himself as the Son of God. Son of God. Son of Man. It is here in Luke chapter 1 that we see the unique majesty of God in giving to us a Savior that is himself. This Savior is himself so unique in his majesty. He was no common man, and this would be no common birth. In fact, Luke is the writer that describes the majestic way in which God the Father presents his Son to our world in this passage. This was intended to reveal the very majesty of God's gift of salvation. His son was very unique. He was unique in the way he was conceived. And I think this is one of the very curious works of God that God does not fully reveal to us in his word. How God came to be in Mary's womb is merely described with these words, quoting from Luke 1, the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. That's all we know. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. I've tried to imagine in my mind, because I do this a lot, what that might look like. And I can picture one moment in history where God the Son is seated in His righteousness and His glory and His dominion on the right hand of the Father, seated on His throne. He rises And he sets aside his divine glories. And in an instant, the Holy Spirit makes him this tiny embryo that is in the womb of Mary. And that's the best that I can do. I'm the father of five, and I have a general understanding of how babies come into the world. But this goes well beyond my understanding. I can do nothing more than say the power of the Most High overshadows Mary. It is not simply that a baby was placed in Mary's womb. We're able to do that today with reproductive science. This is a, the, the, a picture of God being placed in that womb. God being made into an embryo and placed into the womb of Mary. The incarnation describes what only the majesty of God can accomplish Imagine God resigning in that tiny tiny bit of human tissue inside Mary's womb. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. God and man joined as one. And I guess when we really don't understand a thing, make a big academic word to make it look like we do understand. Ah, it's the hypostatic union. 
Therefore, I understand. I don't. This child would then be called Emmanuel, it says in Matthew chapter 1, meaning that when Jesus came to our world, God was now with us. More than that, God was one of us. He is called the Son of the Most High. He's called the Son of God. We are called children of God by adoption. But only Jesus Christ is referred to as the only begotten, the only begotten from the Father, according to John chapter 1 and verse 14. This once again reveals the unique majesty of God in giving his Son to us. God's eternal plan of salvation is revealed in the exercise of his power and glory through common servants chosen and prepared by him to bring his son into our world as Savior and Redeemer. And these servants of God show to us the worship that God is worthy of in the devoted and obedient response to his will. They show us worship to live in conformity to his righteousness They show us what it means to walk blamelessly before the Lord under the empowerment of the Spirit so that we might be used by God as Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zacharias were used of God to accomplish his purposes. What then are we describing in a worshipful response? But obedience, walking in righteousness. And I'm not talking about a mere moral external performance here. To actually walk blamelessly before the Lord means that the spirit of man is right. Because in God's eyes, that's what true worship is, isn't it? This brings us to the last two verses that we're going to cover this morning. And I'll do this very quickly. A unique presentation, meaning the birth of Jesus Christ, took place there at the proper chosen time at the proper chosen place. While they were there, verse 6, the days were accomplished for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is a couple that had bivouacked with animals, where animals were sheltered. No place in the inn. They had no rooms available. Now, perhaps this area where Mary gave birth was a covered shelter area, like a stable or perhaps a cave where they kept animals. We're not really told, but what we are told is that when she gave birth, she wrapped that child in cloths and laid him in a manger, which would have been used as a cow trough. Now, we often hear of great men that started with very humble beginnings, And we might be tempted to think that's Jesus, a great man that started with humble beginnings. But that would not be entirely accurate. Perhaps we could more correctly say that Jesus began his earthly ministry in a very humble way. But I want you to turn back to Philippians chapter 2 because the Apostle Paul gives to us another view of the nativity of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes these words. He instructs believers, he instructs the church, have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, rather, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now let's go back and see again what God is predicting, what God is prophesying that he is going to accomplish in the bringing of his son. Going back to the early preparations, there his son is, not in humble beginnings, but in the glory and the majesty of heaven itself as God reigning on a throne with all of the glory and the power and the majesty that belongs to God. God took off that majesty and he took on the form of a slave. A slave to who? A slave to our needs. Somebody had to save us and we couldn't save ourselves. So God the Father says to his son, they can't do it. You must. And Jesus removes the glories that he's entitled to. And he takes on the form of a man, the appearance of a man, assumes the role of a slave to our pathetic needs, to take care of our sin and our filth. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So can you get the picture there? Christ arrayed in his glory, removing that glory, coming to take on the body of an infant, born through a virgin, laid in a manger. And he grows to be the Savior that would die on a cross, bearing our sins. And when that was accomplished, he returns to his glory, where he's seated today. And God says to that one, to that son, he will be highly esteemed. Every knee will bow, Every tongue will confess there is no greater than my son. That's the picture of the incarnation. That's the nativity from Paul's perspective in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did all of this willingly, enduring humiliation, man's rejection, man's abuse. And he allowed man to commit murder against him. And he allowed willingly that our sins would be placed on himself. And he would surrender his own life, giving it over in death to make full payment for our sins. And God exalts him because of it. This again is the unique majesty of God's gifting, a gifting that he would ultimately be glorified by. And when nothing else could rescue God's people, God turns to his son and says, you've got to save them. Jesus rises to set aside his glory and his riches that he's entitled to, and he assumes this humble role. Luke writes of the humble circumstances there in Bethlehem that not even a place was found for God's son in the inn, not even a decent, warm, comfortable place where God's son can be brought into this world. But when redemption was complete, notice, 
God exalted his son to a place of honor above all others in God's eternal kingdom, where both the glory of the Father and the Son's majesty is displayed forever and ever, and forever they will be worshipped and praised. Now, if we could consider, and I'm just wrapping it up here this morning very quickly, if we were to consider what we mean by Christmas time worship, it really is worship all year long and for every breath and moment that you and I as believers have. Stretching into eternity, where we will forever be praising and worshiping God, where both Father and Son are beheld in all of their splendor and glory. God put his unique majesty on display when he brought his Son into this world, our Savior. So here's just a couple of things that perhaps we can hold on to when we consider a response of worship because of the birth of the Savior. First, I would say worship is grateful. It is grateful for God's work in all things. As we saw from Scripture this morning, worship is going to find this thankful or grateful to God who works all things. It begins with us seeing God's hands sovereignly working in those things. We see it in the nativity, in a Roman government, in a census, in a taxation, in a 70-mile ride with a pregnant wife. God's hand was working to bring salvation to us. The opposite of worship would then be a grumbling heart that is discontent in life. Worship may not always see what God is doing, But worship will always be confident that God is at work accomplishing his glory and majesty. I appreciate the view of Job, who in the midst of his suffering, in Job chapter 23, he said these words, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there, and backwards, but I cannot perceive God. I don't see him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I can't see him. But he, God, knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's worship, isn't it? In the midst of some of the darkest times of life. Second, worship walks obediently. It walks obediently in righteousness and devotion. A worshipful response must walk obediently in righteousness and and devotion. We see that in Joseph and Mary, and they had a long walk. If we're to claim to be a worshiping people, a true appreciation for the majesty and glory of God will necessarily have a passion to walk in the majesty and glory of God. It is important to note that these ones chosen to serve God in the birth of his son were obedient to him. They walked in righteousness. They were blameless before him. For God to say this of a sinful people means that God was graciously at work in them, equipping them to be used for his glory. And here are some people that were cooperating with God's movement. They were walking obediently in righteousness and devotion. And third, worship must bow and confess Christ for God's glory. Worship bows before and confesses Christ for God's glory. And I'm using the words of Philippians chapter 2 here to highlight that God is not fooled by our pretense. 
We are to bow in worship for his glory. We can call a lot of what we do worship. But remember, God is seeking those that worship him in spirit and truth. And God knows the difference. He knows the heart of worship. Our response to God, our response to Christ, our Savior, must find us bowing before and confessing Christ, worshiping Christ for his glory. Father in heaven, as a redeemed church, we have so much to give praise to you for, to give thanks to you, to honor you, to revere you, to worship you, to obey you, to submit ourselves to you as our Lord and Master. When we examine what you have done for us and who you are, I pray that you would inspire each and every one of us that are true believers to look carefully at you, to see your majesty, and to respond in a way that worships you in spirit and in truth, that worships you from the very depths of our souls, recognizing you for who you really are. And I pray for those this morning, again, that might be listening to these words that have not yet Christ as their Savior. Would you open their eyes and heart to see the majesty of your love for sinners and the precious gift that you have given in such a capable and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray this and for his honor. Amen.